couple weeks back, we talked about different ways that we worship God, and one of those ways uh, was sensates, people who worship through their senses, and uh, part of that is, is worship. So I want to thank the worship team for bringing us before the throne of God by using one of the ways you guys worship Him, through your senses. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but Jerry Kleppinger was back this morning. I don't even know where he is. Oh, good grief. Again, again. Uh, in his usual spot, Jerry, it's so good to have you back playing. You guys keep praying for, for Dorothea's wife as she continues to be on hospice. Uh, Jerry finally said, yeah, I'd, I'd miss you guys. I'd love to be able to come and, and, uh, and join you again. So he had a couple uh, pick him up, and hopefully they remember to take you home. Um, <laughs> And we've got somebody sitting there with his wife, so it's great to have you. Uh, it's great to have you. I got to see where Jerry has been watching the service on his computer at home, and it's a pretty good setup. Uh, so if, if he can be at home and watch, uh, no excuse for any of us, right? Right. For those online, we are grateful that you are here. Uh, I'm not sure if Dick and Lois are watching online, but I was exchanging texts with them this morning. They were eating breakfast in Johannesburg yesterday, uh, which... I think it's just outside of Cheney. I'm not quite sure. Um, but they may be watching us. They send their greetings. They're having a really good time. Um, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. That's probably not a secret. Uh, I've, I've made a couple of mistakes in ministry. <sighs> I, was, I was waiting for like this, this chorus of amen. Yeah, yeah, you have. Oh, whew, yes, I've made a couple of, probably more than a couple of mistakes in ministry. Um, 15-ish years ago, I got to do my first uh, sermon series as the lead pastor here. I had been on staff for a couple of years as an associate, and then I had co-pastored for a year with uh, Ron Miller, and then uh, all the time came, and I got to do my first sermon series as the official lead pastor, and the first words out of my mouth were, we're going to remodel the church. I was so excited, but what you got to understand, anybody remember that? Okay, good. I thought I'd done damage for years. Whew. What you got to understand is that about 18 years ago, we had just finished paying off a big building uh, loan for a remodel, and we were still enjoying larger bathrooms, a, a renewed foyer, and quite a few other things. So for me to stand up in front of the body and say, we are going to remodel the church, you know, jaws dropped eyes got big, and they didn't say it out loud, but I heard them say, who is this green, untrained, crazy pastor who's younger than my grandkids, and what is he doing, right? I, I went on to explain that I meant that, not that we were going to remodel the building, because we had already done that, but that we were going to remodel the way we did church, right? I said, this is a new era. There's, there, there's a new age. We needed to make sure that we were adapting, and this sounds okay, 15 years later, but to the people who were sitting there that day, you know what it sounded like was that I didn't value their past, was that I didn't respect and honor their tradition, was that I didn't, I didn't appreciate the decades upon decades upon decades that they had been practicing church a certain way. It, it made feel, people feel like I was, uh, maybe a Montana term, but putting them out to pasture. You know that phrase? couple people, it made them feel like I was out with the old and in with the new, or tossing the, the baby, a geriatric baby, uh, out with the bath water. Um, made them feel like I didn't want to learn from their history or value them. 
I've made a few mistakes in my ministry career, and hopefully I've learned from them. I guess we'll see. Let's pray. <laughs> Jesus, thank you that we get to open your story to us. I thank you that we get to engage it, and I pray that you would help us dive in headfirst to what it is you want us to hear, to see, to feel this morning. I ask your presence be palpable in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you brought a Bible today, or an iPad, or a phone, or you want to grab the um, burgundy, maroon Bibles that are under the chairs in front of you, go ahead and grab it and open it to the Gospel of Mark, to Jesus' life story as told by a guy named Mark. This morning, we return to a sermon series that we started back last fall called Offensive Christianity. Who's in? Who's out? Offensive Christianity, who's in, who's out. As a reminder, this, this series really uh, began to be, be planted and grow when I was on sabbatical last summer, and I was doing a lot of reading, and I read a quote from, uh, uh, from Rachel Held Evans, and on her Twitter she had said, what makes the gospel offensive isn't who it keeps out, but who it lets in. What makes the gospel offensive isn't who it keeps out, but who it lets in. Even me, she said. Now, that got me thinking. I'm like, man, I can, we could read the gospels differently. We, we should take a look and see who all did, did Jesus let in. So that's what we did. Starting September 11th, 2022, we started this long, slow walk with Jesus. If you remember that language, this long, slow walk with Jesus, looking at who he let in. And by that, I mean... I mean, who he engaged with, who he loved, who he interacted with, who he healed, who he invited to walk with him. Huh. Sounds a little bit like our vision statement, doesn't it? Looking at who Jesus, with this long walk with Jesus, and looking at who he invited to walk with him. So in the, in the months that followed, September, October, November, uh, we saw that Jesus was pretty much inviting everyone to be in relationship with him. Not everybody accepted that invitation, not everybody responded, but he, he said, I want you in relationship with just about everyone. And the crazy thing was, if you were here and you started listening to it, you might have started scratching your head a little bit saying, he's inviting them in? I mean, I wouldn't normally hang out with those type of people. So I just want to review. We're going we're gonna to go over all of Mark 1 through 8 this morning. Not going to take long, though. Mark chapter 1, we saw Jesus starting to invite in the crazy guy in the wilderness. We saw him inviting in blue-collar workers, not the cream of the crop. We saw him inviting in interruptions during church and the untouchables with terrible diseases. That was chapter 1. In chapter 2, we saw Jesus inviting in people who broke and entered into houses that weren't their own, into the, uh, inviting in the social and religious outcasts like a tax collector oh, named Matthew. Right? We saw Jesus inviting people who thought they had faith figured out but didn't. I called them you know, uh, special interest groups. Chapter 3, you guys remembering some of this, maybe? That was a long time ago. I had to go back and look at my own notes, and I spoke it. Uh, chapter 3, Jesus' welcome was to chaos and to a group of 12 guys that really shouldn't have gotten along, and somehow they did sometimes. Chapter 4, it was Jesus welcoming others who welcomed others. In chapter 5, are you following along? You're seeing all this, aren't you? Flipping the pages, it was Jesus who wins. Remember that one? It was a fifth Sunday, end of October, and little Etta, oh, nobody said it better, right? Every time we asked the question, it was Jesus wins. 
wins? I love it. Still one of my happiest moments in ministry. It was Jesus who wins because he welcomed in this crazy, scary guy from the graveyard. That was chapter 5. Chapter 6, it was the crowds that Jesus welcomed in. And all that goes along with large groups of sweaty, hungry mobs. In chapter 7, it was the hypocrites, the unclean outsiders, the people with physical disabilities and maladies. And and in chapter 8, it was we saw Jesus inviting in or requiring risk and sacrifice. Now, as we went through all of these chapters, we saw Jesus spending a lot of time in beaches and on boats with riffraffs, outcasts, and losers, and basically everybody our moms and dads told us not to hang out with growing up. Am I right? You can say amen to that. I love my parents. They raised me well. Some of the people that Jesus hung out with, my parents would have said, don't hang out with, right? Now, perhaps some of you during last fall, if you were here, if you're new, welcome to the half-crazy James. Um, And if you're new, I'd love to take you to coffee. I'll tell you about that later. Uh, Perhaps some of you were thinking to yourself, what in the world is James doing? I was taught not to smoke, drink, or chew or go with girls who do. And all of a sudden, he's like changing things, right? You're laughing because you lived it. Right? You guys were taught in Sunday school that bad, char- bad company corrupts good character, right? You heard that before? You don't hang out with them because they're bad company. It's going to corrupt your good character, right? We were taught in Sunday school to memorize Psalm 1 and 2, and I'll do the James International Version, where it says, oh, the joys of those who don't hang out with wicked sinners, but they hang out with their Bible. That's the James International Version. You won't find that anywhere else, Okay. There's a more accurate translation in your own scriptures. All of a sudden, you're thinking to yourself in this sermon series, what is James doing? I mean, he's telling us Jesus invited these people in and that we should too. He's telling us we should open up our doors to the church wide open, and we should, but he's telling us we should open our lives to them as well, (gasps) right? All of a sudden, you're hearing that all the things that you were taught, that you're exposed to, that you knew, and then all of a sudden, he's talking to this camera up there, like saying that church can be practiced differently, and it doesn't always have to be backsides in the chairs, but you can do it online, because Jerry Kleppinger can watch online, and if he can, it counts, right? And faith is being practiced differently, and you're thinking to yourself, does James really appreciate us, or is he putting us out to pasture? I know that's what you were thinking. <laughs> Maybe not. What's James got against history? What's James got against the traditional way that we've practiced our faith? Is James making the same mistake that he did when he stood up and said, we're going to remodel the church? <sighs> A couple of weeks back, um, we were looking at the... Um, the demographics of our church, okay? And you guys can see the demographics if you look around. Um, we were looking at, uh, initially, I, I guessed how many people were 55 and up uh, because we have a team of people who worships God through caregiving. That's a type of worshiping, just like the sensates. Uh, we had this team of people there getting together to, to talk about how can we best care for our seniors. And I made this list of 55 plus, and I got like 110 of us uh-huh. So, yeah, somebody said, uh-huh, right? Well, apparently I'm not a good gauge of, of ages because um, they said we should really go 60 on up, and that dropped our number down to about 85 or 90. And I've talked to a couple of you this morning who we thought you were under 55 and you're actually over, so I was right and that group was wrong. My guess is, for those of you who are in that 60-plus category, and even those of you who have grown up in the church, so we're going to categorize anybody who's long-standing faith as well as people 60-plus, 
that at some point you guys have been just slightly uncomfortable, maybe, because I have been, when we've been looking at this offensive Christianity, who's in, who's out, and, and wondering, what happens to where we came from? I wonder if the disciples ever felt that. I wonder if in the excitement of following Jesus and, and watching him push back against the status quo and, and watching him buck the system and all the old traditions and just not make sense at times, I wonder if the disciples ever thought to themselves, does he even care about where we came from? Does he even know where we came from? Which, of course, he did because he grew up as a young Jewish boy. Let's not forget that. Jesus didn't come and show up at 33. Poof, right? He, he grew up as a Jewish boy. So as they were sitting there, perhaps wondering, I'm, I'm speculating, I wonder if what takes place in our, in our passage today gave them any sort of peace of mind, like, oh, Jesus does value where we've come from. Jesus does value our past. We're in Mark chapter 9. That was a long intro to get there, but now we're here. Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 1, and most of your subtitles in your Bibles will say this is the transfiguration, which is a fancy churchy way of saying this is when Jesus started glowing. All right? My guess is, as with this text, if with every other text that I ever preached from, you've probably heard sermons on this before. They were all right. They were all correct. They were all accurate. And mine might be slightly different. Uh, I'm hoping it's right and accurate. You see, as I read this text for today, I kept reading it through the lens of Jesus or Mark, the author, welcoming the history, welcoming the tradition, welcoming the past as Jesus continued to push forward toward the future. In the context, let's just put this right where this is. At the end of chapter 8, Jesus and his disciples are having this conversation. Jesus says, who do you think I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah, right? That was a pivotal turning point in Mark chapter 8. And Jesus then immediately says, yeah, you're right, uh, but I'm going to go and I'm going to die. And then I'm going I'm to raise again. And, and Peter pulled him aside, right? Hey, you can't say that. Like, that's... That's not what Messiah is. And, and Peter and Jesus has this conversation that we, we are familiar with when he says to Jesus says to Peter, get behind me. Yeah, see, you know it. That's, that's a conversation that stands out. Get behind me, Satan. Ooh. So we pick up that story right at the end of that conversation in verse 1. Jesus went on to say, I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. How's that for foreshadowing? Six days later, verse 2 says, six days later, now for those who don't understand history, things that happened in the past, that means past had happened. Six days later, if you're, a Bible, uh, if you're a Bible scholar, you know that in Luke's gospel it says eight days later. And actually that, you know, whether it's eight days or six days, it was just the common way of saying about a week later. All right, so about a week later, six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Verse 5, Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, as tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And he said this because he didn't really know what else to say, for they were all terrified. Verse 7, then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. 
Suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus with them. Verse 9, as they went back down the mountain, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves, but they often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. And then they asked him, why do the teachers of religious law insist that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? And Jesus responded, Elijah is indeed coming first to get everything ready. Yet why do the scriptures say that the Son of Man must suffer greatly and and be treated with utter contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they chose to abuse him, just as the scriptures predicted. There is so much in this text this morning, and so much of it points to the past. So much of it is honoring where these disciples have grown up with in the faith. Now, whether that was Jesus' intention or whether that was Mark's intention as he was writing it, I'm not sure, but let me show you what I'm talking about. For starters, just the reference of six days before. You know, a week ago was a long time ago, but sometimes things that happen a week ago are remembered. It's in the past, but it's remembered, right? Jesus had had this conversation with Peter. He had told Peter, look, you're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's point of view. And Jesus had called Peter Satan. Peter was one of Jesus' best friends. That had to hurt, right? Peter, I mean, Peter was a rough-and-tumble fisherman. He was burly. He was a man's man, but it probably hurt when Jesus called him that. So in a sense, what I see Jesus doing here is is, is he's saying to Peter and, you know, James and John, he's taking them aside, and he's giving them this glimpse into what verse 1 talked about before seeing the kingdom of God arrive in great power. He's he's saying without saying it, look, uh, Peter, I'm going to give you a glimpse behind the veil. I'm going to let you see what you weren't seeing. Perhaps, I'm speculating, perhaps Jesus was saying, hey, Peter, I don't regret what I said to you, but you and I are still good, bro. Like, and he may have even said bro. He might have been the first person to say that. All of this is in this history-rich episode that's taking place. Now, Jesus could have very easily just pulled those three aside on the side of the road, and he could have said, look, I'm awesome sauce. I'm as cool as they, as they come. You've seen some of my stuff, right? Just, so you got me right. He could have done that. But no, he went up a mountain. Okay, think back to your biblical history. Who in Jewish history climbs mountains? Moses. Yeah, you guys, I mean, it's in, it's in verse 4 if you're not looking, right? Moses, Exodus 19, Exodus 24. Who else? It's also in the text. Okay, Elijah, oh, good, good. Biblical scholar right there. First, uh, First Kings 19, right? These guys also climb mountains and have this encounter with God. I wonder if when Jesus was walking up the mountain and the three guys behind him, because I think Jesus was in better shape than them, because let's face it, he's God, okay? Um, I wonder if they're thinking to themselves, we're climbing a mountain. What's going to happen? Right? I wonder if they're remembering back to their Sunday school lessons of, remember when Moses climbed the mountain? Remember when, when Elijah climbed the mountain? Now, if they didn't think that then, when they got to the top and Jesus like, started glowing like a, like a flashlight that we can't even imagine, they had to have thought of it then. Right? Verse 2 and 3, um, as the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. You remember how God showed up on Mount Sinai? 
In Exodus 19, it was thunder and lightning. Lightning, I would imagine, is pretty bright. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, when God showed up on, on, on Mount Sinai in Exodus 24, it says that the people below, as they were looking up, it looked like the top of the mountain was a consuming fire. That's pretty bright. Almost like clothes becoming dazzling white, far whiter than any bleach could make them. Yeah, I've seen some connections. If the disciples who were with Jesus didn't make the connections quite yet, then they had to have seen the connection when the heroes of their face showed up. Right? Verse 4, then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. I mean, how's that for a shout out to the past? How's that for, hey, guys, what you grew up learning in Sabbath school? It's taking place, right? Moses was the supreme lawgiver, the one who delivered the Israelites to freedom out of, out, of, uh, out of Egypt and their slavery there. And yes, we know of Jesus as the supreme law fulfiller and the one who's offering ultimate deliverance from sin. But we're 2,000 years later, and, and these guys were right in the middle of the story trying to figure it out as it was happening. You know, Elijah, first and greatest of the prophets, pointing people back to God with gusto and showmanship. And every once in a while, though, Jesus wasn't trying to have gusto. I mean, his miracles were pretty cool. So they were having this conversation. You know, what were they talking about? Listen, the text doesn't tell us. But I'm sure many of you have heard sermons of pastors who are extremely confident they know what they were talking about. You know, a lot of people will say, well, Moses and Elijah were probably showing up because Jesus had just told the disciples what his ultimate end game was, to go and die and raise to life, and they were probably encouraging him. I like that. You know, and I could picture them, and I seriously, I could picture them being like, young man, go forward. Right? Because they would have, Moses was old. Elijah, I don't know how old he was, but Jesus was 33. So I could picture them saying, young man, be empowered. Young man, stay the course. This is all speculation. Don't go home and, and say that that's what I said, the text said. Okay, this is all, like, like we, we sit here and we think that's, that's probably what they told Jesus because we know the end story. But again, these three guys that were in the middle living it, they're like, right? As one commentator puts it about the arrival of Moses and Elijah, it meant that for Peter, James, and John, they saw all that their history had longed for, all that their history had hoped for, all that their history had hoped had looked forward to, all that their history had talked about was now in the middle of taking place. So we sit there and look forward. Those three guys, I'm pretty confident we're sitting there looking back. And remember that a week ago, whether it's eight days or six days, uh, both would be scriptural. A week ago, Peter had declared Jesus to be the Messiah, which actually makes what Peter said make a whole lot of sense. Verse 5 and 6, Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Verse 6, and several of you giggled after verse 6. I have too most of my life. Uh, He said this because he didn't really know what else to say, and they were all terrified. People laugh at Peter at this comment because they think he didn't know what to say. I think he knew exactly what he was saying. I know that might put me as a heretic because I'm contradicting what Mark wrote. But I think he knew exactly what he was saying. You see, because every Jew grew up practicing seven different festivals, seven different week-long parties or, you know, slightly shorter as they were growing up. The seventh of those was called the Festival of Shelters, the Festival of Booths, the Festival of Tabernacles. You pick the name, but whatever it is, it is very close to what uh, Peter says. Let us make three shelters 
All right? That was the seventh of the seven festivals that they would take part in, and every Jewish male was required to take part in three of them. This was one of the three. So up on the mountain that day, could you name the four Jewish males? Jesus, Peter, James, John, and that means for every year of their life, they went with their families and they celebrated this Feast of Shelters, this Festival of Shelters where historically they would build little tents and, and, uh, and, and lean-tos and, and they would live in them to remind themselves of what God had brought them out of and to remind them of their years wandering around in the desert when, when God ultimately delivered them. In fact, God gave the instructions for this festival right after he had freed them in Leviticus 23. Now, over the years... Much like the uh, Passover, over the years, the, the, the festival of, of tabernacles began to take on a, a second meaning. Uh, New International Commentary in the New Testament says this, that, that the Feast of Tabernacles, like the Passover, had come to have a significant reference to the final deliverance of God when the Messiah arrived. Okay, so historically it looked backwards at God's deliverance, but, but like, like then all of a sudden they're remembering that, but they're also starting to think this points us towards when God's deliverance is going to happen again, when the Messiah arrives. What did Peter call Jesus a week ago? The Messiah. Ooh, so maybe he wasn't blubbering. Maybe with him knowing that Jesus was the Messiah, him knowing that this is the time when the deliverer is sent from God to set the people free, maybe this is Peter's tie back to the past, and maybe, maybe Jesus actually winked at him instead of shaking his head like most of us would think. You know, we all think, you meathead, you didn't know what you were saying, but I think Jesus is like, you're the only one who gets it right now. As Peter saw Jesus glowing, I think he was connecting the dots. Peter would have known the story of Moses in Exodus chapter 24. Listen to this because you're going to hear all sorts of echoes back and forth. Exodus 24 verse 15. Then Moses climbed up a mountain. Ooh. And a cloud covered the mountain. We're going to get there. And the cloud covered it, right? And the glory of the Lord settled down on Mount Sinai. And then the cloud covered it for six days. Mm. On the seventh day. The Lord called from the, from the cloud to Moses through the Israelites at the foot of the mountain. The glory of the Lord appeared at the summit like a consuming fire. You hear any echoes in there? Up a mountain, six days, glowing like a fire. God's glory settling down. That's actually verse 7. Then a cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. For the Jews... Clouds and God, like when God showed up, there was almost always a cloud, okay? So when God met Moses, it was in a cloud. When God showed up at the tabernacle and they were wandering, it was in a cloud. When God arrived at the temple after Solomon dedicated it, it was in a cloud. And this is, this is, this is fantastic. Uh, commentator William Barclay says this, And it was the dream of the Jews that when the Messiah came, the cloud of God's presence would return. Well, that doesn't give you goosebumps, and you're not, uh, well, that gives me goosebumps. I can't help but think Jesus is giving a high five to the past. 
I can't help but think Jesus is getting a nod to Pete and Jimmy and Johnny's history, right? I can't help but think the conversation they had on the way down the mountain was extremely purposeful. It wasn't from three guys that were just baffled and confused. It was three guys who, well, they kind of got it. You get verse 8, which we all like to, to, to look at. Suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone. Everybody say, poof. Poof, just like that. They were gone, and they saw only Jesus with them. So they started walking down the mountain, and Jesus says this to them. As they went back down the mountain, verse 9, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Jesus always like says, don't tell, when it's like really good stuff. All right? Not anymore. Not anymore. But... Uh, so, so they, kept, uh, they kept it to themselves, and they asked each other often, what did he mean by rising from the dead? All right, um, um, this whole, like, don't tell. For most of Jesus' ministry, he spent time trying to correct the, the, the misunderstanding, the common misunderstanding that when the Messiah would arrive, he was going to come as this conquering hero, as this military giant who's going to come and overthrow the, uh, you know, the oppressors. So could you imagine what would happen if Peter, James, and John came down and they said, we were up on the mountain and Jesus started glowing. It was bright like on top of, of Mount Sinai and then Moses and then Elijah showed up. This is about to happen, right? Could you, could you imagine? Like if everybody heard that, they would have been absolutely ready for this conquering hero to come in and, and storm Jerusalem and kick all the Romans out. So Jesus says, don't talk about it yet because I don't want that perception to be out there. So they're walking down, scratching their heads just a little bit, and they say, all right, Jesus, I learned in Sabbath school this thing about Elijah coming back. Can, can you tell me what that was about? Right? And it was in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. It begins, look, this is the prophet. I'm sending my messenger, and he'll prepare the way for me. Then the Lord you're seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The end of chapter 4, it says, Look, I'm sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. These guys who grew up going to Sabbath school said, Jesus, what, what, does, that, what does that mean? Like, can you help us with that? And as the four guys walked down the mountain, having just experienced what they did, I'm, I'm fairly confident that these three guys are looking back like, What's happening? All this time Jesus has been pushing forward, but he's given a nod to the past. So they asked him this question, and I've got to believe that when Jesus responded, I've always read this as just kind of Jesus, because of the comment about uh, Peter not knowing what he was talking about, I've always read this as Jesus like, oh, come on, guys, right? But thinking that they actually knew what he was talking about, I think his response was one of honor and appreciation for the past. Yes, boys, Elijah is indeed coming first to get everything ready. Why do the scriptures say the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be treated with utter contempt? Right? That was in their scriptures. They just hadn't seen it, read it, understood it that way. Verse 13, but I tell you, Elijah has already come and they chose to abuse him just as the scriptures predicted. I see that as Jesus saying, yes, boys, your history is correct. Your, your, your past has value and it's happening now, just like your scriptures say. It's just happening in a way that you guys haven't read your scriptures by, you haven't understood it by. So I'm going to honor and I'm going to appreciate your past, but I'm, I'm going to keep walking forward. And as they're in the middle living it, I'm sure at some points they're like, 
okay, yes, it's happening, but where are we going? Yes, it's happening, but where are we going? Jesus wasn't putting his disciples out to pasture. He was honoring their background, their rituals, their history. I've got to wonder, and I don't normally speak with any sort of prophetic tone, and so don't take it as that, but I've got to wonder, as we have looked back at our, we talk about our scriptures, right? As we've read our scriptures, is there going to be times, about, you know, in this series moving forward in the back where, where, where Jesus says your history has deep value. It's helped shape who you are and, and what you believe. And look at how many billions of people claim to believe in me. But we're moving forward and, and, and we're, going to, we're going to keep changing and we're, and we're going to keep growing. And look, it's going to be in your scriptures. Like, I wonder, are there scriptures that we've read a certain way that over the next Five months, five years, 50 years, we're going to look back and say, oh, that's what it means. And I hope if that's the case, I hope we're willing to at least entertain it. I hope we're willing to at least engage with it. I could stand up here and tell you that I don't want to make any more mistakes as a pastor. I will. Okay, I just, it's coming. But I'm I'm going to tell you more than not wanting to make any mistakes, I don't want to miss what Jesus is doing today. Because he's still alive, he's still active, he's still moving and working. Our, our history is true. Where we've come from has deep value. God's in the business of still making things new. So I don't want to miss what Jesus is doing. Will you join me in this journey? Let's pray. Jesus, I have to wonder what some of the scriptures you are going to point to with, with love and, and, and cherishing in your eyes and say, hey, James, you've been taught it this way. You've read it this way. Your fancy commentators on the bookshelves have always said